Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Wow. Good morning, Hills Church. It always feels so good to get to be back with you, guest preaching. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Dave, and I got to serve here on staff for several years, and it's even more of a joy to be back on the verge of so many projects. Love the 50-week kicking off uh, yesterday and into this week. <laughs> I, I have to say, this week that you're stepping into is pretty near and dear to my heart, but I also feel like I have to give you a little bit of a warning, and the warning is this. Um, something happens inside of you when you step into the things that are close to the heart of Jesus. Something dramatic happens in us as we step into the plans that God has for our communities and for our states and our nation. Uh, I got to say, as a teenager, God got a hold of my life. When I first started uh, serving in a ministry, volunteering in a ministry, showing up to worship God through serving, and it continued as I stepped into to pastoring, as I stepped into to recently serving with World Vision. And I would tell you that the 35,000 World Vision staff that I am honored to serve uh, with would agree that when we serve, it's a two-way process of transformation. Both the person or the people that we're serving and something that takes place in our own hearts and lives. And so if you kind of are on that edge, I, I cannot tell you enough with both a warning but excitement, step in. This, this morning, we, uh, we're gonna jump into uh, a passage that I think will set us up really well for this week. We're gonna jump into a passage that is a bit of a, of a, of a pregame dinner. You guys know what a pregame dinner is? Those of you that maybe have athletes in your household, especially high school athletes, or maybe you were one, and it's like the night before the big rival game, if you ask any of those athletes, they would tell you that the pregame dinner the night before is a very big deal. In fact, oftentimes teams will get together for like a spaghetti feed or something and someone will say, hey, we have to eat chicken parmesan because a year ago we ate that dinner before a big game and we won. And so the pregame dinner is taken extremely seriously. Dessert is cut from the menu and everything is like scientifically prescribed for the team because it's the last thing you can do after a week of hard practice. The pregame dinner is so important. And so I thought, hey, I, I think we get to kind of come to the dinner table for a pregame meal of God's word this morning before we step out, before you step out into so many projects. I think I heard 60 or 70 projects this next week. And so the passage we're going to look at is a, is a, is a pregame dinner that Jesus leads on the doorstep of his own death and crucifixion. It's a dinner unlike any other in scripture where Jesus gets a private room and he thinks through every detail of the evening to make it unmistakably ingrained in the minds of his followers. So we're gonna flip to John chapter 13. I saw several of you coming in with Bibles. I love that. Flip, flip over to John chapter 13. And I'm gonna take us right into it right now. Is that okay with you, church? Are we ready to dive into God's word this morning? That's what I like to hear. All right, hang with me. If you've got something distracting you this morning, just put that aside. Here we go. Now, John chapter 13, verse 1. I hear pages getting there. I'm, just give, I'm giving you, I'm, I'm, I'm pausing dramatically to give you a chance to get there. I know what it's like. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to, be- to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid his outer garments. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Verse six. He came to Simon, Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. We're gonna unpack this. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you were clean. Verse 12, just a few more verses. Jesus says, or uh, the writer says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Final verse, if you know these things, blessed are you who do them. Father God, would you just transform the moments that we get to share together entering into this moment in history? God, for every man, woman, child in here, for everyone watching online, God, would you allow this scripture to be a scripture for us individually? We ask this in your name, amen. Friends, it's because of John that we get to enter into this particular scene of the Last Supper. The gospel writer of John is the only author, for whatever reason, I've got my theories, who decided to include this part of the Last Supper dinner. And so right now, you and I get to enter into the tension, the awkwardness, to the questions and some of the confusion that fills this passage. It's almost as if Jesus says, okay, this is our Last Supper. This is the pregame meal. Tonight's lesson is this, know what you're for. Tonight's lesson, disciples, and our big idea this morning is simple. Know what you're for. And Jesus, instead of beginning with pulling out the chalkboard and a lecture 
decides that, you know what? Instead of starting with a little speech, in about one hour, I think they'll experience the lesson that I want them to grasp. You know, the disciples at that dinner, up in that upper room, would undoubtedly be filled with all types of questions. In fact, I think their three years of following Jesus was accompanied by so many questions like, what am I doing? What am I here for? Why did I give up my lucrative career of fishing to follow this guy? Mom and dad are really freaked out by all my choices right now. And the questions would just be like flipping through their minds. Like, what are we, what is this whole movement Jesus is talking about? What are we going to be remembered for? And I think, like the disciples, you and I wrestle with those same questions. What are our lives for? What are you here for? What are we going to be remembered for? What is the problem that for the 50 is trying to solve for? Or what is the, the problem that love the 50 this next week is trying to solve for? And I think unmistakably, it's the fact that we as Christ followers have one of the greatest messages that the world has either never heard, has underheard, or has oftentimes misheard or misexperienced. And so in this moment, in this passage, we're reminded that our calling is to help the world know the greatest message that exists. And each of us have a task and a role to play in that. About uh, two and a half weeks ago, it was Tuesday, September 5th, I was in a checkout line with a basket at a grocery store, only getting a few things. And I'm next up and I'm flipping through my phone and I see a message that comes across it. And instantly I have to fight back tears in my eyes as the clerk says, Next. It's like the worst timing. I'm opening my phone and I'm reading that my friend and a friend of many in the community, Vince Minnie, had tragically passed away that morning. And so instantly I'm taken by it. I'm free, I'm frozen up. I, I, I go, I don't even know, I just gave him my wallet and said, do what you need to do. And I leave. And and instant like so much, if you've had these moments, rushes through your mind. Quickly, I realized that I had a separate message on my phone from Vince's college-age son earlier that morning that I had yet to get back to. So much more going through my mind. The first moment I met Vince was right out here in this lobby, the connection zone of the lobby. And we were sitting next to each other, first time, never met each other, at a Chamber of Commerce lunch. Each of our first time at that type of a lunch, this church has been hosting that for a long time. And Vince and I begin chatting and talking and getting to know one another. And we feel like two high school girls just chatting the whole lunch and people are looking at us and the lunch finishes and we go back to my office and we keep chatting and we say, hey, we should probably get together next week. And we just keep chatting about faith in life. And one week led to two weeks, led to three weeks, led to a year and a half of us meeting weekly on Thursdays for lunch right here in our office. You see, Vince was a man's man, but not unwilling to ask the deep and hard questions of the soul. Vince was like a dog on a bone, curious to know what God wanted for his life. 
And so I say, well, the only way that I know how to pursue an answer to that, I, I can't give it to you. But we can turn to God's word. And so for a year and a half, we opened up scripture together and we looked at what is God's hope for your life, for our lives. And my observation that I made was the more time we spent unpacking and grasping the gospel in each of our lives was the more that he began to have clarity. He wasn't content to say running a gym here in town for so many years, it's an incredible gym, Maine's House of Pain. He wasn't content with that being the reason that God created him. He said, God has far more in store for me. And he began to realize that the, the gym is just a platform for a way for him to love people and to come alongside them. And he felt consistently challenged by the gospel of what God's done for him that would compel him for what he's to do for other people. I share that story because I think this morning, the best place for us to look for what we're for is right back into scripture. And this last supper teaching from Jesus is an incredible place for you and I to glean what it is that you and I are invited to be for. I believe that there is a war that is raging in our minds for for territory, for the things that you and I will be for. And there are so many temptations within us that like, our occupations and this and that, like, like that can be the thing that we're most for. And yet Christ has something far deeper and richer if we're willing to press into it. So this morning, if you're willing, we're gonna press into scripture together and discover some deeper things that we are invited to be for. First one, chapter 13 of John it says, now before the feast of the Passover, I'll just pause for a second. Passover, if you're newer to church or maybe you've been around and you just need a refresher, has been celebrated for 1,400 years up to this point in scripture. And it's a celebration of the Israelites released from slavery in Egypt. And so every year at a cedar dinner during Passover, the first kind of, of the first Monday-ish of the week, they'd have a cedar dinner and they would celebrate with a, 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 a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb would be sacrificed. And that would be the celebration of Passover. Jesus is not mistakenly choosing this meal in this time of year to embark upon his death and resurrection for us. He's trying to, to hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that I am about to be the spotless lamb and sacrifice for you, my friends. And so the gospel writer doesn't miss that. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That powerful writing, gospel writer John, just makes this profound observation. He loved them well, he loved them to the end. I pray those words could be said about my own life. I, I think many of us would pray that. Uh, the first thing that we learn that Jesus is for is he is for love. He's for love. I don't think anybody would disagree with me in here. If you've been around church at all, heck, if you haven't been around church, I think you would just nod and go, yeah, huh? I mean, we got John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. We've got the greatest commandment to love one another, right? To love our neighbors. We've got the Sermon on the Mount that's littered with uh, ways that we can love. We've got numerous parables and teachings. Y'all, if you want to argue that Jesus is for love, I'll see you out back. That's not happening. He's for love. 
But I think that this gets far more difficult when our eyes go to verse 2. Verse 2 feels a little bit out of place, but John had to include it. He says he loved them to the end, and then verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. It's like between two commas. It's like this, oh, and by the way, he's loved him to the end. I'm going to tell you what Jesus is about to do. But by the way, John writes, I want you to know that there is an elephant in the room at this last supper. And the elephant in the room is Judas Iscariot. A little background on Judas. Judas is, uh, he is tasked with being the, the, the money collector for the disciples. And at that dinner, here's what's about to take, we're not going to go there in all the scripture, but here's what's going to take place. It's going to be a foot washing. There's going to be a time of communion. And then Jesus, he's going he's to make some hints. He's going to say some things that there's somebody here who's going to betray me. And then Jesus is actually going to say, okay, Judas, you can go now. Told you it's an awkward dinner, a little tension, right? And somehow it's over the disciples' head, it shouldn't be, that, that he's the one that's going to betray him. They think as the money handler that he's just off to buy more party supplies because it's Passover week. <laughs> Look, I can't make this stuff up. And so he'll, he's about to leave. And in the next following hours, Judas is scared for 30 pieces of silver. It's going to go sell out the location of where Jesus is going to be in the following hours to the religious officials of the day. Furthermore, included in that package of 30 pieces of silver, he says, I will make sure that I identify him with a kiss so you get the exact right person who claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. There's some betrayal that's about to take place. There's an elephant in the room. The passage continues, verse three through five. It says, so between the commas, now Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus rose from supper, verse four, and he lays his outer garments, lays aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he ties it around his waist. He pours water into a basin. He begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Do you wonder what's going through Judas' mind at this moment? You ever think about that? Somebody who's set in their mind and heart to betray Jesus Christ is having his feet washed by the Messiah, by the Son of God. I also wonder what's going through Jesus' mind in this moment. And furthermore, there's a little bit of confusion, but you could decide either way. Jesus is going to, when he was washing the next person's feet, and we're going to study that in just a moment, he makes a statement that not all of you are clean, implying somebody in here is going to betray me. And what you and I don't know is if he'd already washed Judas's feet or if Judas was just next in line, just further causing the heart rate to increase. Jesus knows what's going on and what's going to take place. There's an elephant in the room. You see, at first I said, hey, Jesus is for love and he's loved him well and he's loved him to the end. But what we're learning this morning is to be for love with those that are hard to love is what Jesus wants us to catch. To love those who have betrayed or gossiped or hurt or ignored or to love those who it's inconvenient, it seems unfair. To love those who may have been hostile towards your faith or towards your views These are the type of people 
that Jesus is hoping to rub off onto us that we are invited to love. Who's the elephant in your room? We've all got elephants. Who's the elephant in your, your room that you are invited and called to love? All right, I, I, I got to make us a little bit more uncomfortable. Are you guys okay with that? All right, it's like, oh, maybe. Uh, ima- let me just make up an analogy. Imagine with me for a moment. Uh, you know, we live in a culture, we have a tradition. If you're having guests over to your house, y- you, you often, I hope, would go and clean your guest bathroom, right? All right, to clean up this analogy, I'm going to use the European term washroom, okay? So you'd, you'd clean up that part. You'd have guests over. If you're, like, new to having guests over, young adults in the room, this is, just, just take notes, Okay. You clean that place up. Now, I know this group. You're on it. And so imagine with me for a moment that you're having some guests over. Let me say 12 or 13 of them, okay? And uh, you didn't clean it, all right? Like, I know it's rare, but you didn't clean it this time. And your guests, like, the evening is off to an incredible start. And imagine you've got a guest of honor who's there with you. Think about who that would be right now. Like, you would be giddy excited to have this person at your dinner, okay? That person is there. And imagine with me for a moment that that person just kind of silently gets up during the meal and they walk over and they, they kind of find under your sink some, some yellow, you know, rubber gloves. And, and they're like, Hey, I, and they, they're kind of walking down the hall and you're following them. What's he doing with yellow gloves? He's like, Hey, I just want to, I want to do something for you. I'm so grateful for this. I want to wa- I want to clean your, your washroom. I want to clean your restroom. Uh, yeah. You'd be like, this is awkward. Your husband would be like, who did we invite over? Your pride, some of your, your pride would be hurt, like deeply, some of you. Like you'd be so embarrassed, beat red. You'd be starting to protest. Then you glance down the hall, you see your three teenagers, two of them are boys, and pure death comes over your face when you realize what he's about to step into. You're thinking you'd have a better time at a 7-Eleven quick stop, okay? And so he just continues, you can't talk him off the ledge. And he's like, hey, look, Either you let me do this or I'm out of here because this is how we're going to be in a relationship. You've got to let me do this for you. And as soon as he says that, your, your, your husband chimes up like, well, if that's the case, you clean the whole house tonight. And you just elbow him. And, the, and the, the whole thing proceeds, right? This is the awkwardness of John chapter 13, friends. Let me catch what happens here. Verse six. He says, Jesus, okay, so he's He's changed. He took out his outer garment. They wore two robes. He's put it aside. He's, he's put a towel around him and he's proceeded to wash the disciples' feet. In verse six, it says, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Verse seven, Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Feet. A little backstory uh, on foot washing in first century Palestine. Y'all, there was no pavement, all right? It's dirt roads everywhere. They weren't hopping in their, their, their electric vehicles to drive places. You're huffing it on foot most of the time. Maybe you had a camel. Uh, you got leather sandals. And so you've got sweat-induced feet all the time, okay? And so it would be customary when you come together for a dinner gathering, when you enter the house, the lowest servant, not just any servant, the, the tradition is the lowest servant, kind of last one hired, you're the one cleaning feet tonight. And so that person would proceed to clean all their feet before what? Before they're sitting down, feet crossed, and just next to the food and everything, right? It makes sense. Except this particular night, nobody 
Nobody offered to wash feet. Now, I don't know. Maybe Jesus told the owner of the, the private room, hey, skip the foot washing tonight. That's on me. I got, a, I got a little illustration for the disciples, for the boys. I think he's a little disappointed, but like none of the disciples offered to do it. That would have been in here for sure. So here he is. He begins to wash the feet, and Simon Peter protests. The second point that we begin to learn that Jesus is for is he's for humility. It just, you can't contest with it. He's for the idea, the ownership, the deep soul and foundation of humility. The passage continues, verse eight. It says, Peter said to him, right, you shall not wash my feet. But Jesus answered him, strong words coming back out. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, okay, Lord, do not wash only my hands. Uh, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Clean the whole house. Jesus, though, says, it's like easy, easy. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Wink, wink, Judas. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. So we got the whole Simon Peter exchange and, 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 and he just thinks like, look, oh no, you don't. And then in verse nine, Jesus kind of puts him in his place. He says, look, you've got to receive this from me. And then in verse two, or verse 10, he responds to this idea, well then wash all of me. And he uses two different words. He uses bathe and wash. Two things are taking place here. Are you guys ready to multitask with me? Jesus is always making life a little complicated for us, which makes it complicated for the preacher, but here we go, and the listener. He says, hey, the one who's bathed is good, but we got to wash your feet. Okay, here's the deal. Before you go to a big cedar Passover dinner, of course you're going to get cleaned up, right? You're going to shower. You're going to bathe how they would bathe in first century Palestine. But you're still going to pick up some dirt on your way to the dinner, on your day. And so the customary would ring true that we still need to wash our feet. But I think Jesus is also trying to say a little bit more about what it means to be followers of him. Meaning, look, you've already bathed by giving your life to me and committing yourself to a life with me as the Messiah. You're saved. You're bathed. But it doesn't mean as followers of Christ that we don't pick up some dirt as we walk through culture every day. It doesn't mean we don't stumble through a little bit of sin. It doesn't mean we don't get hung up every once in a while. And what he's trying to say is, look, you don't have to ask to be re-saved every time. We're in relationship. But it is something so healthy about returning to me and just confessing the places where we've picked up some dirt in society and saying, Lord, would you wash me of that? So multiple things are taking place right now. There are two types of humility. That was the first one. It's what we accept from others. Some of us have some pride that's blocking what we will accept from others, certainly from a God who loves you and wants to forgive you and have a relationship with you. The second type of humility, though, is what we're willing to do for others. And Jesus is also modeling that for us right here. You see, humility isn't a lack of power. It's not giving away power. It's what we do with power and the ways that we forgive with humility and love and compassion. See, to be for humility is to put a pause on our pride and to engage one another 
in a way that culture just simply will not grasp easily. Does that make sense? To be for humility is to pause our pride. Less of me, Dave, and more of you, Lord. And that's going to cause some things in my life to take place that will not make sense to most of the world. That's what being for humility looks like. In Luke chapter 7, there's an amazing moment in, in Scripture where Jesus is having a meal at the Pharisee's house. None of the disciples approved of this, by the way. They didn't like it. It was bad optics. He's having dinner at the Pharisee's house. And in the meal of the meal, an uninvited uh, guest interrupts, comes through the door. And the scripture calls her a woman of the city, which would basically mean a prostitute. And she comes in and tears are already streaming down her face. And the scripture writer in Luke records that she bends down and with tears from her eyes, she begins to, to just wash Jesus' feet. And using her hair, she begins to scrub his feet. And then it says she pulls out ointments and she just, she, she puts them on his feet. It's like the most expensive thing that she owns. You can tell from the scripture that she's been in the city. She's heard the teachings. She's heard the rumors of who Jesus is and what he stands for. And in humility, she's come to terms with the, the brokenness in her own life. And it's brought her to the point of tears and it's brought her to the point of worship as she goes before Jesus and she cleans his feet. Humility is the best soil for your and I's experience of the gospel. And the gospel is this, simply the good news that God loves us so much that no matter what our story in the past is, no matter what we're going through in the present, that he did send his son Jesus, who in a mere hours is gonna go to death and crucifixion for these, these very people, for you and I. And the good news is that you can't earn it. But it's in the process of our humility, realizing that we need it. And when we step into relationship by saying yes to Jesus in our hearts through a prayer, we're made right with Christ. And oftentimes, the most beautiful things come out of our lives the more deeply we embrace what Christ is doing and done for us. The passage continues in verse 12. We're on the third part. We've already knocked out two. Third part, Jesus wants to put a bow on this whole thing. It says, now when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, and this has been an eventful moment. Jesus says to them, do you understand what I've done to you? Again, I wonder how Jesus is feeling right now. It says, verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord. Hey, and you're right, for so I am. But verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's making it crystal clear for us, friends. Verse 15, for I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you who do them. Do you understand what I'm doing for you? He leads with a question. Did you get it, disciples? Are you, are you with me, he's asking. It's always much deeper the things that Jesus is doing, isn't it? There's always a layer upon a layer 
of God's hope and message for us. The last, the third point that Jesus is for is he's for serving. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He's for serving. And Jesus is saying, in a way, warning. He's given a warning to the disciples. You see, in a, in a culture, a religious culture that was void of authentic love, it was a religious culture of the day that was hung up on, on rights and wrongs, that was held back by deep pride, and was often pacified by just knowledge. And I can relate to that. Sometimes I'm just pacified by knowledge. He says, I want to speak to those people. I want to speak to us in this light. In verse 13, he essentially says, hey, I'm so glad that you agree that I'm a good teacher. In fact, I'm glad that you agree I'm Lord. In verse 14, we get an if-then statement. I love if-then statements. Now, this one's a little bit tricky. You, you could almost miss it. But verse 14 he says, if I, if I, who's I? He's going to break it down. If I then, your Lord and teacher, who, by the way, has washed your feet, then we get back to that word then, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, he goes, this is to be a guide, an example for our lives. In James 1, 22 it says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only of the word. Don't get hung up. Don't get complacent in knowledge of who Christ is, but allow it to move from your mind to your heart to your feet. Jesus is saying to be really for service, to really be for serving. Know what you're for is to realize that, friends, talk can't be cheap. To ask if if our actions fall in line with our minds and our speech, to ask if there's a pattern in our life that reflects the pattern that Christ said, this is the example. Now follow. I, I get convicted by this. This is challenging moments. I want to share a quote with you that I read in an article that grabbed me. The quote is this. Sociologist Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, sought in part to answer the question how a little sect of a few followers at the time of Jesus' death could have a worldwide following of millions of adherents within just a few centuries. One of the primary answers that Stark found is that the early Christians saw themselves as agents of healing while everyone else ran and hid in the midst of persecution. The willingness of early Christians to run to the front lines of suffering, as well as their ability to offer radical hospitality and compassionate service in the midst of great need was the greatest and most effective form of evangelism. Our ability to offer radical hospitality and compassionate service is the greatest and most effective form of evangelism that the world has ever seen and will ever see. Whew. 
uh, in July, I was in the northern part of Zambia, region called Muamba, and I was visiting uh, an AP, an area project that World Vision has some work in. It's one of thousands upon thousands of area development projects where we'll spend 15 years helping the community get out of extreme poverty and to get on their feet. And a beginning part of that process is listening and building out a business plan. And so we began to listen and ask them, what are some of the needs that you have? And the community quickly responded with things like, yeah, we need access to clean water. We need a better education access and we need greater access to health. And they told World Vision that the amount of, of mothers and babies dying at birth was devastating. And the level of trauma that mothers were going through and carrying with them from their birthing experience was just terrible. And I'm, I'm hearing this as the Genesis story behind what World Vision's been up to there. And then I got to, I got to walk into the, uh, the health clinic, the health outpost clinic that they had been using for years. I think I have a photo of it. This was a one bed, no windowed room uh, with no electricity and no running water. That would be where uh, every year, hundreds of moms were expected to give birth. And you can imagine why with no running water, no ability to sanitize, wash hands, you can imagine it's not hard to figure out why so many women and babies were dying at this moment. Very preventable. So World Vision listening said, hey, we can absolutely step in to that challenge that you are facing. World Vision is incredible at, at launching thousands of outpost health clinics to their mother-child health maternities. And they said, we're ready if you're ready. And for that to happen, we need you guys to commit to coming alongside this, to, to building a, a, a council of volunteers who will be the backbone of the facility that we'll bring. And so over time, World Vision helped facilitate that and the women and men came together to be a part of that answer. World Vision went back and the World Vision US team quickly fundraised $125,000. They, they quickly fundraised it and they said, okay, we're, we're bringing you a health clinic. We built the health clinic. And, and here's a photo of kind of like just the inside. I just snapped it real quick on my iPhone as I'm walking through it. There's electricity, there's running water, there's flushable toilets, the only one in, in many miles radius. Uh, there's professional beds, there's multiple beds, there's curtains, there's a waiting room, there's dignity given to the women. But here's the thing. It, we knew building it wasn't gonna be enough because people had stopped wanting to turn towards the healthcare system and they were just doing it on the ground of their huts with burlap sacks underneath them and some crazy aunt or grandmother trying to tell them how to, be, how to, how to give birth. And so this team of volunteers came together and I'm meeting with them in July and I'm beginning to understand their journey and their story. And they began to tell me how, how twice, how twice uh, a week, they make two, each of them makes two visits to an expecting mother. And World Vision kind of equips them with a bike, which is a, a really big gift for them. And after two years of being a volunteer, World Vision deeds the bike over to them and it becomes their, their pride. They own the bike and they're part of this volunteer team. And I'm, I'm hearing what they're doing and how they're winning back the trust of the community. Like, hey, you, you want to give birth here. And every week they're bringing just-in-time training. They're telling them, hey, here's, here's how to be healthy. Here's, here's what to expect. Here's what you're going through. This is hitting me, of course, because I just had a baby. My baby's only 18 months old. So I'm just like trying to fight back the tears. And, 
And uh, I got a photo. I'll kind of give you a quick glimpse. I just sneak them on my iPhone. Um, that's outside the, the, the mother-child health ward. And all these people in orange vests are the volunteers. They look like crossing guards. Uh, they're like, they're branded. It's, it's their Love the 50-Week t-shirt, by the way. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're, we're having a time. And then go to the next photo. We sit down with them over some shade. And in the upper left-hand corner, that's Catherine. And I asked a question. I said, hey, can some of you share, I kind of heard from the, the, the project leader. I said, can some of you share why you volunteer? Because I'll be honest with you, like, I, you know, when I was on staff here, like one of my roles, one of my passions was mobilizing people into serving. And I'll be honest, it is not an easy role, everybody. You guys are busy people. And these people are fighting extreme poverty and they got to make ends meet. And I'm thinking like, why are you all like, you're all volunteering all this time every week? Where, where is this coming from? I ask the question and every hand shoots up. Why are you doing this? And I could see them come alive and awake. And Catherine stands up. Someone calls on Catherine. Catherine stands up and she says, when I, as a girl, young girl, gave, gave birth, uh, it was the most uncomfortable and unpleasant experience in my life. And she goes, the, the villagers would come around me and at the time of the birth, they would start pinching me and stick a wooden uh, salad spoon down my throat thinking if they induced vomit that that would help the baby somehow come out. And, and she continues to say that there were things I can't even tell you that were done in that whole process that just are traumatizing. And she goes, we've prayed that that would not be the future generation's stories in this facility, in this team is an answer to those prayers. She goes, I am overjoyed to serve. And she just says, thank you. But like when they say thank you in Zambia, you're like, you are really, thank she just kept saying thank you. And she started bowing. I'm like, you don't need to bow to me. I, you know. And she just keeps bowing. And then she gets down on her knees and she keeps saying, thank you for bringing. And then she lays down on the floor, right in that foot. You saw that. She's laying down in front of us, all the volunteers around. And she's saying, thank you. And I just began to feel the sense that this woman has been a recipient of God's goodness now in her community. And it has become the motivation. She knows what she's for. She is willing to serve. She's not getting paid for any of that. She's willing to serve and to jump into the lives of other expecting mothers to be a part of them having a different story to being touched by God's love and goodness in their life. Thank you, Catherine. Know what you're for by knowing what Jesus was for. And he was unmistakably for love with humility and wasn't afraid to get their hands dirty and step into service, into action. And I think that describes the heartbeat of this group and this community and what's about to take place. Imagine, imagine as Christ followers from Africa to El Dorado Hills continue to double down on Christ's invitation to be for our communities, to be for it in a way that's sacrificial and loving. Imagine the impact that that has in both the lives of the community and the lives of us as Christ followers. And I love that so many of you have an opportunity, an easy opportunity this week to step in to this opportunity. And I love the way it often leaks beyond one week. Some of you maybe haven't signed up. You got to sign up for one. Some of you, you signed up like a month ago. You're early adopters. And some of you though, maybe God's like stirring. They're like, hey, look, one's not going to like get a hold of my heart. Maybe you've got to sign up for two or three projects and double, triple down. I, I don't know what it is, 
But if you want to experience some transformation, you kind of got to tiptoe into some some discomfort. Maybe you got to cash in a vacation day at work. Maybe you got to hire a babysitter. I know those kids don't make serving easy sometimes. I don't know what it looks like. That's between you. But verse 17, unmistakably says at the very end, if you know these things, Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If there's one thing I know, I know that all of us are hungry for the blessing of God over the path that our feet walk. That's an exciting opportunity and invitation to serve. We're gonna end our time by sharing communion together. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to lead us in communion. At the very same Last Supper meal, where Jesus has now washed the disciples' feet, he starts to transition the meal to communion. And in the back of Jesus' mind, I think he's thinking this, if you think me washing your feet was a big deal, you should see what's about to take place in the next 24 hours as I give my life for you. And so at the meal, he takes the loaf of bread, he breaks it, and he says, this is my body being broken for you. In the same way the scripture says, he took the cup and he pours it, and he says, this, this wine, this juice is to be a symbol of my blood, which I'm to shed for you. I'm giving my life as a spotless, without blemish lamb to be the ultimate sacrifice for you, friends. And what I love right now is you've got these elements in your hands, and in a moment of silence, you and I are going to enter in to that last supper, not just through what we've listened to, not just through what your heart is meditating on right now, but through our taste buds. And we're going to be participants in the last supper with the message that Jesus has for the disciples and you and I. Let me pray for us, and then I'll invite you to partake. Lord, I'm so thankful for this ancient scriptures and books and stories that you've preserved for us to lean into. God, thank you that it's not about us. It's about the rich and deep invitations that you've invited us into. Lord, right now, we ask blessing over the projects that are taking place this week and the ways that the community will feel the love of Christ through some foot washing this week. God, right now, would you meet with us as we partake in these elements? Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.